This is an audio sermon recorded at the Church of Christ at Johnson Mill in Fayetteville, Arkansas. We are Christians seeking to worship God in spirit and in truth according to the New Testament. Come worship with us Sunday mornings at 1030 at 3801 Johnson Mill Boulevard. 1 Timothy chapter 4 verse 16 underneath the title will introduce the thoughts today. Paul said, Take heed unto thyself and unto the doctrine. Continue in them, for in doing this thou shalt both save thyself and them that hear thee. We have a lot of people today who think doctrine's not very important. Sometimes you'll bring up a particular doctrine, a worship doctrine, or some other doctrine in Scripture, and someone will say, well, that's, that's really not that important. That's not a salvation issue. That's not a salvation doctrine. And I don't know of any doctrine in the New Testament that we can will- willingly disobey. I don't know of any doctrine in here that we can overlook and say, well, that's not important for me. After all, in the Great Commission, didn't Jesus say to go teach all nations and baptize them? And then he said, teach them to observe all things whatsoever I've commanded you. That means his doctrine. And notice here that Paul said to Timothy, there's two things to take heed to. Take heed, number one, to yourself. We've got to take heed to ourselves, to our lives and how we're living and different things about us. Take heed unto thyself. Secondly, he said to the doctrine. He said, continue in them, for in doing this thou shalt both save thyself. So if we take heed to ourselves, we can save ourselves. Thou shalt both save thyself and them that hear thee. So if our doctrine is not right, then we can't save anybody that would hear us. There are a lot of religious groups out there that are teaching today. They go door to door, they're very zealous, and they bring their doctrine around to different people, and that doctrine's false. And it's not going to save anybody. And no matter how zealous they are, no matter how much teaching they do, they haven't taken heed to the doctrine. And so in in not doing that, they're not going to save somebody else. Doctrine's important. And we're warned in the Bible repeatedly about false doctrine, about false teachers. So I want to talk a little bit about this morning before we, we study Calvinism. I've got some scripture there at the top. I did not have room to type those out for you the scripture there that's in colored print. But the Bible warns of false doctrine and false teachers, and I'm, I'm going to give you four individuals that gave warnings. That's the reason for these four different people. Christ, first of all, in Matthew 7, 15, said, Beware of false prophets which come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravening wolves. So Jesus gives this warning. There's the first one. Christ said to beware of false prophets. And then in uh, 1 Timothy 4, verse 1 to 3, Paul gave this warning. Paul said, The Spirit speaketh expressly that in the latter time some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their conscience seared with a hot iron, forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from meats, which God hath created to be received with thanksgiving of them which believe and know the truth. So Paul said men would depart from the faith and give heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils. And then Peter gave this warning, 2 Peter 2, verse 1 and 2. Peter said, but there were false prophets also among the people, talking about the Jews, even as there shall be false teachers among you, who privily shall bring in damnable heresies, even denying the Lord that bought them, and shall bring upon themselves swift destruction. And many shall follow their pernicious ways, 
by reason of whom the way of truth shall be evil spoken of. So Peter clearly warns there will be false teachers among us just like there were false prophets in the Old Testament. And so we're warned about them. First John 4 verse 1, John gave this warning. Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits whether they are of God, because many false prophets are gone out into the world. Now there's a warning from Christ, from Paul, from Peter, from John, four different men, all giving these various warnings about false teachers and false doctrines. There was a doctrine that was real prominent back in the, uh, from the 1500s on up till probably the 1900s, and it's making a resurgence again. It's called Calvinism. It was started by a man named John Calvin. John Calvin lived in France in the 1500s, and in the early 1500s, Calvin was brought up a Catholic, as most people in France were, but he soon began to side with the Protestants, those protesting Catholicism. <coughs> as a result, uh, he was run out of France, basically, and Calvin went to Switzerland and took up refuge there. And Calvin started a bunch of churches that are called Reformed churches. We know them by different names here in America. But Calvin had a series of doctrines, five points in fact, the five points of Calvinism that are all false and every one of them are connected. And I want to look at this and the, the first letter in each of these doctrines spells the word tulip. That's why I've got that word tulip there on your chart on the left top. Uh, the doctrines are this, if you'll notice across there in the shaded boxes. The T is total hereditary depravity. The U is unconditional election. Three, limited atonement. Four, irresistible grace. And five, perseverance of the saints. And we're not going to have time to say everything about these doctrines this morning that needs to be said. Some of you fellows that teach might want to take these individually and just work a lesson on each one of them. I'm going to give a comprehensive view of them and talk to you about what these doctrines are because they're making a comeback today and since the Bible warns us to take heed about false teachers and false doctrine, then we need to be aware of that, not only for our own selves, but we need to help people that are confused about these things. There are people that need guidance. They're, they've been taught error and Every one of these doctrines are connected and every one of them are full of error. The first one, let's just read what, what Calvinism says here about total hereditary depravity. Quote, We believe that through the disobedience of Adam, original sin is extended to all mankind, which is a corruption of the whole nature and a hereditary disease, wherewith even infants in their mother's womb are infected and which produces in man all sorts of sin, being in him a root thereof, and therefore is so vile in the sight of God that it is sufficient to condemn all mankind. That's a quote from the Belgic Confession, Article 15 on Original Sin. And what they're saying is that all of us have inherited Adam's sin, original sin, and it has so corrupted our nature that even in the womb a child has this sin inherited before they're ever born. We're born with this condition. And they believe that we're totally depraved. That is, a person can't think a good thought or do a good act. They are so depraved. And therefore, they are lost simply because of what Adam did. So they just teach these little children among us, babies even in the womb, little infants, 
little small children are just sinners, that their whole nature is corrupt. You and I know that there's nothing more pure than a little child, nothing more innocent. The Bible says that we do not inherit this sin. The Bible says we are born innocent and then later sin. And let's look on the back now at some scripture, and I have these in four columns that match the ones on the front. First of all, Psalm 58 and verse 3, David said, The wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray as soon as they be born, speaking lies. Now notice that statement. He says we go astray as soon as we're born. If we're born sinners, if we're born sinners and we go astray from sin, we would become righteous, wouldn't we? So according to this position, if we have inherited sin from Adam and our whole nature is corrupt, and as soon as we're born we go astray, then we would go astray from our unrighteousness that we were born in. That means we would become righteous, but we know our own human condition, our own experience is not that way. We know that as soon as a child is born, one of the first things it learns to do is lie, is tell lies. You and I probably think back on the early days of our childhood. If you'll go back far enough, you'll remember the time you lied to mom and dad probably because we go astray as soon as we're born. We're born innocent and then go astray as soon as we're born, speaking lies. And that's one of the first things we get rather good at is lying. So we are not born inheriting sin from Adam. Ezekiel 18 and 20, the Bible says, The soul that sinneth it shall die. The son shall not bear the iniquity of the father, neither shall the father bear the iniquity of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon him, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon him. We do not bear the sin of anyone else. We are responsible for our own lives. The soul that sinneth, it shall die. The son shall not bear the iniquity of the fathers. We have not inherited that sin. Matthew 19, verse 13 and 14. Matthew says, Then were there brought unto him little children, that he should put his hands on them and pray, and the disciples rebuked them. But Jesus said, Suffer, little children, and forbid them not to come unto me, for of such is the kingdom of heaven. So the Lord likened those in the kingdom to little children. When he compared God's people saved, he compared them to a little child. There's nothing more innocent than a child. Of such, Jesus said, speaking of children, of such is the kingdom of heaven. And then in Romans 7 and 9, Paul talked about his own experience in life. Paul talked about the time that he was young, when he was underage, when he didn't know right and wrong and good and evil and didn't understand the law. Paul said in Romans 7, 9, For I was alive, he means alive unto God, I was alive without the law once, but when the commandment came, that is when he understood the law, when the commandment came, sin revived, and I died. And he's not talking about physical death because he's writing this about his past. He said, I was alive once, alive to God. When the commandment came, sin revived and I died. And he never died physically, he died spiritually. And that shows us then that we start out alive unto God. And then of course as we gain understanding of right and wrong, we choose to do wrong and we die spiritually. So this idea of total hereditary depravity that we have inherited sin from Adam, original sin, is just false. The second doctrine, since we have 
inherited Adam's uh, depraved condition, supposedly. Then the doctrine comes along of unconditional election. In other words, if we can't seek God, if we're that totally depraved, that we can't think good thoughts and do a good act, then God's going to have to choose us because we don't have the ability to choose Him. We're, we're too sinful. That's the doctrine. That's the thought. And so now they come along with the doctrine then of unconditional election. Calvinism says, and I quote, By predestination we mean the eternal decree of God by which He determined with Himself whatever He wished to happen with regard to every man. All are not created on equal terms. But some are preordained to eternal life, others to eternal damnation, and accordingly, as each has been created for one or the other of these ends, we say that we have been predestined to life or to death. That's the Institutes of the Christian Religion, John Calvin, and a quote from him. So in other words, you and I have no choice about serving God. God's already made that decision before we were ever born. Way back before he ever created things, God elected some of us, Calvinism says, some of us to everlasting life, and he chose some of us to eternal damnation, and we can't do a thing about it. And so that makes God a respecter of persons. If you're lost, that's God's choosing, see. It really makes us have nothing to do with that. If we're saved, that's all God's choosing. We didn't choose to be saved. He chose to save us. It puts everything on God and makes Him a respecter of persons. <clears throat> so if I'm lost, it's not my fault. I was elected to damnation. See, if you're saved, you had nothing to do with that. You were elect. God chose you, and you can't do anything about that. In other words, you're going to be saved whether you want to be or not because He chose you to eternal salvation before the world began. That's the doctrine of election. You're born depraved, and then God makes a decision as to whether or not you're one of His elect, see. But the Bible says that God does not respect persons, that we make our own calling and election sure. And let's notice some scripture here. <clears throat> when Peter came to the house of Cornelius in Caesarea, uh, he saw all these Gentiles gathered there, and he, he opened his mouth and said of a truth, I perceive that God is no respecter of persons. But in every nation he that feareth him and worketh righteousness is accepted with him. So God is no respecter of persons, but in every nation he that fears God and works righteousness, Peter said, will be accepted. And then we read there in Romans 2 and 11, for there is no respect of persons with God. No respect of persons whatsoever with God. In Hebrews 5, 8 and 9, we're told here how we get eternal salvation. The Bible says of Christ that though He were a son, yet learned He obedience by the things which He suffered, and being made perfect, He became the author of eternal salvation unto all them that obey Him. God is the author of eternal salvation to all them that obey Christ. See, And so there it is. We have to obey Him to have everlasting salvation. Peter puts it very plain, 2 Peter 1, verse 5 to 11. Peter said, Beside all this, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, and to virtue knowledge, and to knowledge temperance, and to temperance patience, and to patience godliness, and to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness charity. 
For if these things be in you and abound, they make you that ye shall neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But he that lacketh these things is blind and cannot see afar off, and hath forgotten that he was purged from his old sins. Wherefore the rather, brethren, give diligence to make your calling and election sure. For if you do these things, ye shall never fall. For so an entrance shall be ministered unto you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So he tells us to add to the faith, the faith that saved us. Add to that faith virtue, to virtue knowledge, to knowledge temperance, to temperance godliness, or patience, to patience godliness, to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness charity. And he said if these things are innocent abound, we won't be barren or unfruitful. But he said if we lack these things, we're blind. We can't see afar off. We've forgotten. Now notice, we've forgotten we were purged from our old sins. This is a Christian here that forgets his salvation. He's forgotten he's purged from his old sins. When you and I are first saved, when we become a Christian, the salvation is from past sins, not future sins. There's a life to live after salvation. So God forgives the past, gives us a clean slate, and then we make a walk with the Lord. And that walk has got to include things that we add to our faith, like virtue and knowledge and patience and, and temperance and such things as that. See. And then he tells us here that give, give diligence, verse 10, to make your calling and election sure. According to Calvinism, our election is sure. God chose to save us before the world began, and we didn't have any choice in it. But Peter seems to think differently. He tells us to give different diligence to make our calling and election sure, because if we do these things he's writing about here, he said you'll never fall. Well, what if we don't do them? Then we will fall. That's the implication. And so then our election then is in our hands as well. God chooses us, and we choose him, and how we live makes a difference. I remember reading a story one time of a, of a church that asked an old black preacher if he would uh, preach on election. They wanted to hear a sermon on election. So he got up the next Sunday, announced that he'd been asked to speak about election. He said, here's how election works. He said, God, he votes for you. The devil, he vote again you. And you cast the deciding vote. That's election. He, he pretty much had it summed up. That's really how it is. God's for us, Satan's against us. We cast the deciding vote. And that means we vote by our life, by how we give diligence to make our calling and election sure. And then the third doctrine, let's look at it. We've looked at the total hereditary depravity and unconditional election. The doctrine that naturally follows now is called limited atonement. Calvinism says this, quote, the biblical or Calvinistic position is that Christ intended that his death should atone only for the elect and not for others. According to this position, man is totally depraved, and God loving some with a great love elected them, or in other words, determined that they should be saved. He sent Christ to die for them and them alone, thereby saving them. Thus, the atonement of Christ is limited to some and is not intended for all, hence the name limited atonement. So here's the, here's the whole setup now for Calvinism. You are born totally depraved. You cannot seek God because 
You're too depraved. You're too wicked. You've inherited that from Adam. God chose you before the foundation of the world or else he didn't. But if he chose you, then when Jesus came to this earth, he died for you. But he didn't die for anybody that's elected to hell. He only died for the elect. See, that's the doctrine. His atonement at Calvary is limited. Limited to the elect. That's what they mean by this doctrine. You see, they can't have Jesus dying for the whole world because they believe God's already chosen who will be saved and who won't. And so they can't afford to let Christ pay the sin debt for everybody and make salvation available to all because God's already decided that. So, so the doctrine is that when Christ came, he just died for the elect. He didn't die for the whole human race. But then that contradicts the scriptures. Here's what the Bible says. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 14 and 15. Paul said, For the love of Christ constraineth us, because we thus judge, that if one died for all, then were all dead, and that he died for all, notice that, died for all, that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. So he died for all, didn't he? That's the, that's the plain wording here of Paul in 2 Corinthians. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 3 to 6. Paul said, For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, listen, who will have all men to be saved and to come unto the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. Yes, Jesus died for all. Again, we see in Hebrews 2 in verse 9, the writer says, But we see Jesus who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he by the grace of God should taste of death for every man. Not just the elect. He tasted death for every man, the Bible says. Second Peter 3 and verse 9, Peter said, The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Look at that statement. God is not willing that any should perish. So there goes the doctrine of election out the window. He's not willing that any should perish. That's not his will. What is his will? That all should come to repentance. There it is. And so this idea of election and predestination is just wrong. Number four. The next doctrine that Calvin came up with is irresistible grace. And uh, just think about it a minute. That naturally follows. If you're totally depraved, you can't seek God. So if you're totally depraved and you're born that way, and God had to choose you as one of his elect, and Jesus came and made an atonement for you and died only for you because you're one of the elect, then God's got to set out to save you because you're so wicked you can't seek him. You're totally depraved, see. That makes God going to have to come to you and me in order for us to be saved. He has to make the first move and uh, save us against maybe our own will because we can't. We're depraved. We don't seek Him, see. And so they've come up now with the idea of irresistible grace. And here's what that means. Let's read the quote. It's kind of long, but let's read it. Calvinism says, quote, Although the general outward call of the gospel can be 
and often is rejected, the special inward call of the Spirit never fails to result in the conversion of those whom it is made. This special call is not made to all sinners, but it is issued to the elect only. There it is, see. The Spirit is in no way dependent upon their help or cooperation for success in His work of bringing them to Christ. It is for this reason that Calvinists speak of the Spirit's call and of God's grace in saving sinners as being efficacious, invincible, or irresistible. For the grace which the Holy Spirit extends to the elect cannot be thwarted or refused. It never fails to bring them to faith in Christ. That's one of the that's from the five points of Calvinism, Steele and Thomas, page 49. So what, what Calvinism is saying is if you're one of the elect that God chose, that Jesus died for, God's going to send His Spirit. He's going to send that Spirit on you, and it's going to work inside you silently. And it's going to convert you to Jesus. It's going to impart faith miraculously. Forget the gospel, because a lot of people reject the call of the gospel. If God wants you saved, He will send irresistible grace, grace you can't resist. He will work on you in such a miraculous fashion that you cannot turn Him down. And He will never fail to convert His elect that He chose before the world began. That's the idea. That's the doctrine. Irresistible grace. In other words, we have no choice in the matter. We cannot resist. And that's the idea. But the Bible teaches that you and I are called by the gospel, not by this irresistible grace. Think about this. If, if God doesn't, if, if according to Calvinism, God doesn't send the Holy Spirit on us, we're lost, and we can't help it because He just didn't send the Spirit to us. Let's say He sent it to one of you, but He didn't send it to me. He drew, the, he drew one of you irresistibly to Him, but He didn't make that working in my heart. Then that makes God responsible if I'm lost, see? puts all the blame on him because he didn't send grace to me that I couldn't resist, but he did to you. What, a, what an awful doctrine this is. It takes our free will plumb out of, the, out of the matter, and we have no say as to whether we're saved. Now let's look at some scripture. First of all, <coughs> we are called by the gospel and we have free will in our own salvation. John 6, here's a passage we don't often look at, but I want you to look at it this morning. Jesus said, No man can come to me except the Father which hath sent me draw him, and I will raise him up at the last day. Let me stop right there with you. Christ just plainly says, Nobody can come to me except I draw him. I've got to draw a person or he can't come to me. Now, how does he draw us? Does He draw us by this irresistible grace, this silent working in our heart that we can't refuse? Or does He use His Word? Let's read on. In fact, let's go back to the beginning of those verses. John 6, 44, No man can come to me except the Father which hath sent me draw him, and I will raise him up in the last day. It is written in the prophets, They shall be all taught of God. Everyone, therefore, that hath heard and hath learned of the Father, cometh unto me. Now look how he draws us there. Nobody can come to me, Jesus said, except the Father which sent me draw him. It is written in the prophets, 
they shall be all taught of God. Every man, therefore, that hath heard and hath learned of the Father cometh unto me. That implies then that we're taught. We've got, to, we've got to hear and learn from the Father about Jesus. And when we've heard, when we've learned, when we've been taught, then we can come to Christ on our own. He draws us, in other words, through the Word of God, through the Gospel. I didn't put this scripture down, but there's a passage, I believe it's about uh, 2 Thessalonians 2 and verse 14, where Paul said, Whereunto he called you by our Gospel, to the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. We're called by the gospel. That's God calling. When this gospel's preached, he's saying, come, come to me. And he tells us about Christ. He tells us of his love for us. He tells us of Jesus shedding his blood for our sins. He tells us of the Lord's resurrection to give us hope of being raised one day. He puts this faith within us and creates and induces us to repent through incentives and motives that are contained in the Word. The Word tells us of God's love. It warns us of judgment to come. And that's God trying to draw us, to warn us, to tell us how He loves us, and to draw us to His breast that He might give us salvation. And so every man that hath heard and hath learned of the Father, Jesus said, cometh unto me. There's not some special calling. It's the Word, isn't it? Let's read some more scripture about this. Mark 16, 15 and 16. He said unto them, Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, but he that believeth not shall be damned. Jesus said, Take this gospel to every creature. Why? Because we're called by the gospel. And it has to be preached to every person. That's how God works on us. He doesn't, he doesn't send irresistible grace. He sends the gospel. Romans 10, verse 13 to 17. Paul has just said that whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And he said in verse 14, How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach except they be sent? As it is written, How beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace! and bring glad tidings of good things. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Esaias saith, Lord, who hath believed our report? So then faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. Look at Paul's reasoning here. This is very logical. He says if you call on the name of the Lord, you'll be saved. And we know what he means to call on the name. We call on the name in baptism. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But he said, how are you going to call on that name? How are you going to call on him in whom you've not believed? You've got to believe before you can call. And how are you going to believe in him of whom you've not heard? You've got to hear before you can believe. And how are you going to hear without a preacher? Somebody's got to preach to us. And how will they preach except they're sent? So he talks about calling on the name of the Lord, believing so that we can, hearing so that we can believe, preaching so that... Uh, Belief and hearing can take place and sending of preachers. In other words, what he's saying is you send preachers, they preach, people hear so they can believe, call on the name of the Lord, and be saved. It starts with the sending out of preachers. Faith comes by hearing then and hearing by the Word of God. It doesn't come by irresistible grace. And then in Revelation 22 and 17, 
John says, The Spirit and the bride say, Come. Let him that heareth say, Come. And let him that is a thirst come. And whosoever will, let him take the water of life freely. So this is a whosoever will invitation. Open to everybody, not just the elect. The Spirit says, Come. The church or the bride says, Come. So the Holy Spirit and the church plead with people to come. The Spirit and the bride say, Come. Let him that heareth say, Come. Let him that is a thirst come, and whosoever will, let him take the water of life freely. And that's not irresistible grace. That leaves us with a choice in the matter, and if we're lost, that's our fault. Finally, there's the doctrine of perseverance of the saints. This is the old doctrine of once saved, always saved. Can't fall from grace. If you'll think about it, it fits naturally in Calvinism. We are totally depraved, according to Calvinism, and so God chose some of us before the foundation of the world as His elect. He then had Jesus come and die for the elect. Then He sends irresistible grace on us who are the elect. And because we are the elect and have been saved, then we've been predestination to everlasting life. Then He will not let us fall. In other words, we, we are preserved. We can't fall from grace. Perseverance of the saints. And here's how the doctrine is, is read here. Here's the quote from Calvinism. The elect are not only redeemed by Christ and renewed by the Spirit, they are also kept in faith by the almighty power of God. All those who are spiritually united to Christ through regeneration are eternally secure in Him. Nothing can separate them from the eternal and unchangeable love of God. They have been predestined unto eternal glory and are therefore assured of heaven. That's from the Five Points of Calvinism, Steele and Thomas, page 56, unquote. But the Bible says a child of God can fall from grace, that we can be lost. And let's read three or four scripture. Galatians chapter 5, verse 1 to 4. Paul told the Galatians, Stand fast therefore in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made us free, and be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. Behold, I, Paul, say unto you, that if you be circumcised, Christ shall profit you nothing. For I testify again to every man that is circumcised that he is a debtor to do the whole law. Christ is become of no effect unto you. Whosoever of you are justified by the law, ye are fallen from grace. So these Galatians had already fallen from grace because they left God's grace and went back to circumcision and Moses' law trying to be justified. And when we walk away from the grace of Christ and seek to go back to the law and try to keep it perfectly, we'll be condemned because we can't keep it perfectly. We fall from grace. And because we've left Jesus, we don't have grace. The law doesn't have grace. The law cannot extend mercy to us. The only thing law can do is tell you what sin is and tell you what's right and wrong and condemn you if you fail to do it. That's what law does. It gives you the knowledge of sin and condemns you when you break it. But it doesn't have any mercy in it. There's no grace in law because it's one of those systems for salvation. You either do the whole law or you're lost. If you violate it one time, you're lost. It requires perfection, perfect works. You and I need grace. We don't have perfect works. We haven't kept God's law perfectly, nor do we. 
And so we've got to have grace. And when we leave that grace and try to go back to keeping the law of Moses and such things, we're going to fall from grace. And that's what these people did. Let's read other scripture about this in Hebrews 10, 28, 29. He's writing to Christians. He said, He that despised Moses' law died without mercy under two or three witnesses. Of how much sorer punishment suppose ye shall he be thought worthy who hath trodden underfoot the Son of God and hath counted the blood of the covenant <coughs> wherewith he was sanctified an unholy thing and hath done despite under the Spirit of grace. He talks about people here that uh, have been sanctified by the blood of Jesus. These are Christians. And he said they trod underfoot the Son of God and they count the blood of the covenant wherewith they were sanctified unholy. They've done despite under the Spirit of grace. You know, I've likened it like this sometimes. All of us know people that have been saved. They've been, been baptized. They walked with the Lord. Some of them were even teachers in the church. And yet you don't see them in the assemblies anymore. We've come here today, and one of the things we'll do is take the Lord's Supper. We'll drink the fruit of the vine to remind us of the blood of Jesus, our salvation. To a lot of people, this blood's nothing. It sanctified them at one time. It meant everything to them. But they've trodden underfoot the Son of God and counted the blood of the covenant wherewith they were sanctified an unholy thing and had done despite under the Spirit of grace. So yes, that can happen to Christians. One other scripture, 2 Peter. 2 Peter 2, verse 20 to 22. <coughs> Peter said, For if after they have escaped the pollutions of the world, through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled therein and overcome. The latter end is worse with them than the beginning. For it had been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than after they have known it, to turn from the holy commandment delivered unto them. But it has happened unto them according to the true proverb, the dog is turned to his own vomit again, and the sow that was washed to her wallowing in the mire. He talks about Christians that have escaped the world, the pollutions of the world through Christ, being again entangled therein and overcome. And I've showed you many times, we can't get again entangled unless we're entangled and get free and then get again entangled. So this is a person that's escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of Christ who is again entangled therein and not just entangled, eventually overcome. He said the latter end is worse with them than the beginning. It would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness and after they've known it to turn from it, see. So yes, we can fall from grace. Now here's these five doctrines once again. Total hereditary depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, perseverance of the saints. And the first letter in those spells the word tulip. And that's how you can remember these doctrines. Just remember the word tulip. Total hereditary depravity. Unconditional election, limited atonement, hereditary, uh, excuse me, irresistible grace, perseverance of the saints. Let me leave us uh, this morning with 1 Timothy 4, verse 16 again there at the top. Take heed unto thyself and unto the doctrine. Continue in them, for in doing this thou shalt both save thyself 
and them that hear thee. Doctrine matters. So let's learn these doctrines. Let's learn them well and <clears throat> not just for our benefit, but this is making a resurgence. These, this Calvinism doctrines, these doctrines are coming back. And folks back in the 1800s, they were, they were dominant here in America. Uh, a good part of all the denominational churches in this country in the 1800s believed these five points of Calvinism. Let me share this before I stop. Um, in the days when uh, Alexander Campbell, Walter Scott, Martin W. Stone, some of the old restoration preachers back there were first getting back to the Bible and starting and restoring again what we know as churches of Christ. They faced Calvinism everywhere they went. They preached a lot on these doctrines. I haven't preached a lot on them myself because I don't run into them very much. Maybe the one on falling from grace. But they preached on these things continually. Many of them were kicked out of the denominations they were in because they taught against the creeds in those churches. And so this was a uh, this was very prominent doctrine in their day. It's making a comeback now. And that's one reason I wanted to give this lesson was to warn us about that and not just for our protection because I doubt that any of us are going to believe these. But there are people that do and they need our help. And so here's some verses maybe that will get you started in your study that will enable you to handle these doctrines a whole lot easier. God bless you. We hope you enjoyed this teaching from God's Word. To receive new sermons each week, subscribe on Google Play Music, iTunes, Spotify, and like us on Facebook. Thanks for listening, and God bless.